0: The following episode of the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, includes advertising provided by our network GCN. If you'd like to subscribe to an ad-free version of the program, plus the exclusive After the Paracast podcast, please visit www.theparacast.plus. That's P-L-U-S. Once again, that's www.theparacast.plus. The Paracast, Paracast dot dot plus. Plus. You're in the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: Every so often, Tim and I get notes from people on X or Facebook or whatever saying that we do UFOs too much. Ah, another flying saucer episode, how could you do that? And what we find is you may bring on a researcher who covers a lot of other stuff you where she is after Bigfoot or ghosts and such. But somehow, UFOs do still get in the picture because they consider that there are lots of different types of strange things going on. So it's not as if we can escape UFOs. But today, I don't think there's any way we can even begin to bring up UFOs because we're going to talk about food. But not just any kind of food holy food which has a subtitle recipes and food ways from cults communes and new religious movements the guest is christina ward and she is a publisher editor and obviously a cook welcome christina to the PowerCast.
2: oh thank you so much i'm thrilled to chat with you and tim today this is going to be fun
1: it really is and i should put my cards on the table here before we talk about food. And that is, I grew up in a Jewish family, but a Jewish family that passed the first generation of immigrants was not super devout. So my mom, for example, would make me a BLT sandwich, which is hardly kosher. Now, I also should say, as far as being a foodie, I enjoy different cuisines, but my expertise at cooking these days is taking the item out of the refrigerator, sticking it in the microwave, and pushing the start button.
2: You are not alone. That's very much describing a lot of American cuisine at this point in time.
1: Right. Like, tonight I'm going to get Chinese, but it'll be Chinese that will sit there and cool off as we get ready for the evening, and then I'll stick it in the microwave for a couple of minutes. I've not been able to do that too well with pizza. Pizza never seems to come out right (laughs) It, if you try to warm it in the microwave, I guess it's meant to be used in the oven for rewarming, but not so much. We can maybe talk about that later. Tim, I think if I visited Tim Swartz house, he'd be the one to cook. Is that right, Tim? Yes, that's correct. I am the cook of the household. Christina, to get started with this topic, what led you to a book by the title of Holy Food?
2: So Holy food, like um, so many people who focus on research and a niche topics, came out of this kind of connection and the obsession. There's an updated subtitle to the book, and it's kind of how cults and communes and new religious movements influenced what we eat. And so the focus is on this idea that we're eating food all the time and we don't know where it comes from. And sure, we think about that as like, oh, do we know the farmer or do we know the store? Is it organic? But my work is beyond that. It's about looking at the strange, and I think it's odd, convergence of cults and these new religious movements that could only happen in the United States and how they had an outside influence on all the food that we eat. Well, let's get started. How did you get interested in this topic? At childhood, I think, as we start developing our tastes and our preferences in childhood, I grew up in what's called a kind of a mixed household. Uh, my mother was Catholic and my father was atheist. And so there, within that tension of the household, you start to realize is where the religion started influencing food decisions of what people were going to eat for dinner, or even the performance aspect of it, of going to, say, a mass on Easter Sunday and people bringing all their food to be blessed and then taken home to be eaten. And that, to me, spurred this really interest about why does God care what we eat? Okay,
1: I'll ask that question, because obviously people who are of the Jewish faith, for example, and other faiths say, do not eat pork, do not mix dairy and meat.
2: So from the earliest times, from the kashrut, from the, what are the kind of collected Jewish food laws, if you actually look at those laws in context of the time period, you are actually keeping yourself and your tribe and your family very safe from food poisoning, from pathogens. When people talk about how filthy pigs are, it's not really about the external, it's the internal. Pork carries a lot of pathogens within in the actual meat. Prior to modern antibiotics and modern science, which, you know, thousands of years ago, it would be pretty easy to get something like a trichinosis or other foodborne uh, pathogen through food and specifically through pork. So by banning pork... You're going to keep your people safe. By not mixing dairy and other meats, you're going to keep your people safe and healthy. All the other rules in the Kashroot about cleanliness, too, are all lead to food safety. And so from that originating point, all the other rules and interpretations start to cascade down throughout time. Now,
1: I understand the matter of cleanliness and avoiding disease, but then we have this other practice where religious leaders will bless or approve a particular variety of food from a particular source so for example to have kosher meat technically it has to be approved by a board of rabbis does that still hold true
2: It does. And not just approved by the Board of Rabbis, it also has to be prepared in a way in accordance to the rules set out by the Rabbinical Council. The same goes for uh, practitioners and believers in Islam, and their food rules are similar to the Jewish food rules, and it's called halal. So if you go to a halal butcher, it means that the meat has been prepared um, according to those rules. And those rules come a little bit later. Um, It becomes a way to identify and become a member of that community. And the rules about um, what's kosher and what's not, and then help people to adhere to the belief practices. And honestly, some of the ideas about what is good and what is bad, what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat, have evolved over time and as well as then get changed as people, especially in the United States, where we don't have any state religions, people get to go any direction they want. They can be a God, they can hear God, and they get to make up their own rules, which a lot of people did.
1: We'd like to go into that. Now, let's start talking about specific cuisines and the various laws involved there. But I just wonder, since this is a paranormal radio show, I wonder if anybody who has contacted alleged higher beings also has some kind of food requirement. I'm not thinking in terms of a case from the 60s, where a farmer from Eagle River, Wisconsin, by the name of Joe Simonton, allegedly met up with people in a flying saucer that looked Italian. That's interesting. And... (laughs) retrieved or was given some pancakes in exchange for water i would have assumed that to make the pancakes you would need water but then what do i know so have you at all i this is possibly out of your wheelhouse there christina anything about people who claim contact with other beings coming up with various versions of food
2: You know, it actually, funnily, I kind of laughed to myself when in your introduction you said, oh, there's no UFOs, we're talking about food. And I was laughing like, oh, no, we'll talk about UFOs. Because the book of Urantia, which I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, was essentially a book that was channeled from different ascended masters who exist on different planes on different planets there's some interpretation there and within that book that was um initially kind of came about and i think real, post-world war ii I'm, i don't have the dates right in front of me is people built a number of belief systems around the book of urantia that also then incorporated eating systems and then you, people are like well which ones i'll give you a really dark one heaven's gate heaven's gate developed a whole system of eating about purifying their bodies for their space brothers because the space brothers were coming to take them away to you know the the essentially utopian off-planet existence
1: christina we'll break here and we'll get back with more about holy food with gene tim and christina you're in the (laughs) Paracast. TheParacast Plus. To learn more about Paracast Plus.
3: Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy. There's no reason why you shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: The book is Holy Food. Christina Ward joins us, and we're getting to hear how different cults and different Peoples who allegedly were in contact with other beings had specific dietary laws. I was also thinking for some reason about this title where in the 1960s, we had this semi-serious TV show, Batman, and Hmm. Robin would say to Batman, holy food, Batman, it's time for lunch. (laughs)
2: <laughs> you know, Jean, I'm glad you got the joke, because there's a couple little Easter eggs and jokes within, on the, both on the book cover and in the title, because holy food, I was thinking about kind of Batman a little bit, but as well as the Hindu notion of prasadam, prasadam translated means holy food. It is this notion that all food comes from a god from a spiritual being, and therefore we need to thank those gods. That's why we say grace if you're a Christian before you eat, and we feast and we fast, and we're always aware of God. From the earliest days of manna from heaven, that's actually a real thing. People have looked to explain mysteries by ascribing it to a deity.
1: Let's return to the thing we were talking about in the last segment about the Heaven's Gate Affair, and specific dietary requirements sent by these other beings.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the leader at that Maurice Applewhite, um, and prior to his partner, I we almost said wife, but they, they weren't really married. Bonnie, they had a lot of ideas about what was health food that really reflected the time period in in that late 70s. They actually even published a cookbook in 1983 that was filled with recipes that would be recognized today as like kind of health food recipes, vegan nearly, but definitely vegetarian. And again, it was about purifying the body. And this notion is actually similar to one held by the Seventh-day Adventists, that your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And therefore, you're only the custodian. So you shouldn't be eating candies, Cokes, and cheetos you need to take care of it heaven's gate believed similarly deriving that information from the book of urantia that again if they wanted to be taken to the utopian planet the believers needed to make sure that that um their carcass the vehicle was worthy of transport
1: okay so what specific requirements can we talk about here with them
2: no meat, no, uh, not a lot of dairy. Caloric restriction, meaning you know, so they weren't ones to have, um, you know, seconds at dinner. You ate the prescribed amount that you needed just to live, just to keep your body and brain going. Anything more than that was considered, you know, excessive and indulgent and unnecessary. Now. In the Heaven's Gate belief system, they didn't have like an exclusionary punishment per se. It was fairly benign in that sense. But the group shows some of the dangers of these new religious movements and these beliefs that if you take an illogical premise to a logical extreme, you can get a very bad outcome.
1: Yeah, it's strange that a lot of the things you say, well, someone wants to watch their weight be healthy actually make logical sense. But even people who are bodybuilders will occasionally reach into their refrigerator for something that's maybe not so healthy.
2: Well, of course, because we're still primal basic beings and our lizard brains react really well to salt and fat and sugar. And when those three things are combined, it's almost irresistible.
1: Speaking of all these combinations, one thing that's very popular, and I have them as well these protein bars they're supposed to be very healthy, but other than the extra protein aren't they still candy bars?
2: They are they are if you look at the sugar content on them it's it's quite high, and if you're using it as a meal replacement, okay, you know, but you can't eat other things. And that is, again, a very American idea. Let's take something nominally healthy and make it really hyper palatable and processed and essentially render it unhealthy, but keep the marketing up so people think it's healthy. We do that all the time. Um, If you grew up in the 60s and 70s, you may, may remember all the advertising for all the food was extra fortified with vitamins, you know, putting the vitamins in everything. Well, that was not really quite true, but people felt that they could eat a piece of Wonder Bread and still be healthy because it had extra vitamins in it.
1: Well, it was, I guess, the equivalent of adding elements of a vitamin pill, to your meal to enhance it, supposedly. And of course, most foods you get are enhanced, or allegedly, with coloring and flavoring and extra things to keep them from spoiling.
2: Most processed foods are, which is why the current health recommendations are um, to avoid processed food as much as possible, which actually goes back to what we're talking about with like Heaven's Gate, the Nation of Islam, too. If you followed the Nation of Islam diet, You would be a very healthy person. Uh, Some of their food practices would be familiar today. They advocate one meal a day, heavy on beans for protein. Fish uh, is really one of the only meats that you eat. It's a a very low meat diet and lots of vegetables and greens and whole grains, a very healthy diet and something that not many people, unless you're studying uh, or a member of the NOI, realize is they also believe in UFOs.
1: Okay. Now, as far as the first part, I could dig most of that. <laughs> and I do go to Middle East restaurants, but I get chicken because I don't eat fish and I don't eat eggs. So keep me away from the mayonnaise. That's my problem. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I used to eat canned tuna fish and I liked it on a bagel, speaking of being non-healthy, but I lost my taste for tuna fish. And that was the last thing that i ate that was considered seafood
2: yeah and food changes over time if we look at even uh like tuna modern tuna fish it's packaged differently it's a different type of fish so it would actually taste a little different than it would have say 30 years ago same with bananas um it's a different variety of banana the modern banana is much much sweeter than it was say 50 years ago
1: all right well i guess it makes it tastier and such By the way, my breakfast, folks, if you want to know, is oatmeal. It's McCann's Irish oatmeal. To give them a plug. I like it. And a banana. But I don't really pick a specific type of banana. They have two versions at the local supermarket. One is the regular one, like a dole. The other one is organic. Now, I don't taste any difference. And the regular one is half the price. But as you say, it's sweeter. Does that make it less healthy?
2: It just means, and and calling foods healthy or good or bad, it it is a slippery slope. Um, A banana has really good complex sugars that our brains need. Uh, Bananas also are very high in potassium. So eating a banana with oatmeal, that's a very healthy breakfast. Now, if you ate 10 bananas a day and maybe three Snicker bars and then a six-pack of Coke, no, that is a very not healthy diet because it's not giving you the nutrients that you need for your body and your brain. By the way,
1: that protein bar that I eat is supposedly low sugar. Okay, so at least in that score, it's better, but it also keeps the calories low so I can have a, a bigger dinner than yeah. I other, ordinarily have. Anyway, we've got Christina, Jean, and Tim. You're in the Paracast.
7: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive.com today.
8: It's obvious. The unthinkable continues. Most Americans know something very wrong is happening. People in charge keep telling you that everything's fine and to stop noticing. But you know better. That's why self reliant folks are investing in emergency food storage. And you should too. My Patriot Supply, the nation's largest emergency preparedness company
9: News update: New this Saturday, we learned Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has been in the hospital since Monday. And no one from the White House alerting the media or the public heavy criticism from reporters who cover the Pentagon. Austin reportedly being treated from complications following a minor elective medical procedure. Austin is 70 years old. Another handout to illegal aliens, a report from California that Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom will be giving free health care to another and 50,000 illegals on top of the 1.1 already receiving it at taxpayer expense. This comes as California is facing its biggest budget deficit ever. One person killed 12 hurt after a bus crashes in upstate New York on a highway near Lake George. Police say the bus rolled over detectives investigating the cause of the crash. And I'm Laura Winters, USA News
10: My husband, son, and I have been using this product for a few months now, and we have noticed an improvement in our joints and blood pressure. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit Extendivite.com. That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com.
11: Extend your life with Extendivite. This is Jennifer Stein, executive producer of The Disclosure Dialogues.
12: You're listening to The Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: The book is Holy Food by Christina Ward. And yeah, I guess there are some UFO connections there, some psychic connections. So we'll persist in this description of the foods and the legends and the purposes. Now... We understand in terms of halal and Jewish kosher meals, not wanting to have ham, bacon, whatever, for cleanliness' sake. What about mixing dairy and meat? I don't understand that completely.
2: If you think back to this, like pre science times, milk too, unless it was super fresh, I mean, like fresh from the cow or the goat is a great vector for pathogens. So you could boil milk and render it safe. Uh, but when you a lot of times recipes that mix milk and meat together don't get to up to the required temperatures to kill pathogens. So it's basic. It's just not a good idea if you were living and cooking over a wood fire thousands of years ago to try to, to cook those things together. Now, what is unknown, and science, and, and as well as history and biblical history, d- hasn't really been able to put a, a finger on why that became so encoded, not mixing meat and dairy, why that became so encoded into the kashrut, into those food laws. That's still lost to time a bit. There are multiple theories, and, and they're all a bit spurless, so I, you know, it's not worth really going into. But what's interesting to me is how that tradition has remained intact. For thousands of years, is it now it becomes an identifier? We think about science, modernity, pasteurization of milk, and all the testing and the cooking with meat. There would be no real pathogenic danger to combine those two. Yet, out of tradition and adherence to the religious belief, people who are conservative or um, different Jews who follow the Kashrut food rules don't mix. Um, meat and dairy, and it that becomes purely driven by their religious belief. Well, today milk is
1: pasteurized, so we don't have that mm-hmm. particular problem to deal with. There's also lactose-free milk for those who have that particular problem. So that's where it stands. It doesn't mean I don't, I like cheese. I don't, I'm not a milk drinker, but you know I'll go for a cheeseburger. Although we understand the health considerations, but we're going to get into a lot of these cuisines. I want to hit one more thing before we go on. These days, you go to the local, at least here in Arizona, the local fast food place, like Burger King or Carl's Jr., which is Hardee's in other parts of the country. You can get plant-based burgers, like Impossible is one company, Beyond is another company. And you look at those things, and it's a mixture an assemblage of different ingredients to make it seem and act like meat. Now, meat is meat, except for you know whatever things they do to preserve or keep the insects away when the source of the meat, the chicken or the beef, is out there pasteurizing or whatever. But with all the ingredients in this plant-based meat to look like the real thing, is that a negative?
2: You know, there's negatives to to everything that we eat. We can take the the most kind of pure food and turn it into something terrible. So in the case of fake meats, those were actually started and popularized by the Seventh-day Adventists, who were the owners at one time, they recently sold it, of Morningstar Farms. They currently own the Worthington brand. If you are a buyer of kind of fake hamburger or other fake meat products, you'd recognize those brand names. So they're primarily a combination of soy and pea proteins. The challenge is, and what makes it unhealthy is, as you mentioned, Jean, is a lot of the additives and the process. So you're not really eating just a pure pea, you're eating a processed pea made and shaped and flavored with additives to kind of taste beefy. So in and of itself, it renders it not as healthy. But as Oscar Wilde said, moderation in all things, including moderation. So compared to, say, a Greasy, all beef cheeseburger and plant based protein cheeseburger. Dollars to donuts, when you compare the two, there's fewer calories and fewer kind of the, the fats. That can really cause problems for people's cardiovascular systems in the plant based burger. But again, there's also problems with it. As much as there's uh, planet considerations on global warming with all the cattle farming, so too industrial farming for plants. And so this is all super nuanced when we think about the implications for both our bodies and for our planet and for the culture at large.
1: Also, the plant based meat industry. It's still fairly young, and I guess they have to still do a lot of work. As I said, the flavoring is not quite the same thing. So the Carl's Jr. Beyond Burger, and this is the last time I had it, which is a couple of years ago, tasted sweeter than the real thing, the Star Burger. In terms of Burger King, the Impossible Whopper had less flavor than the main Whopper, which to me is pretty bland. So there you go. They can't match brand for brand the exact flavors.
2: Oh, give it time. I'm sure there's flavor scientists working right now for the perfect combination of chemicals to make anything taste like a hamburger.
1: So you weigh the chemicals against the fat and beef and you say, which is going to kill me first?
2: It's about choices. What, uh, here's an interesting kind of, kind of thought exercise. With climate change and how, how our planet changes is there are more pathogens that are spreading around, thinking about like tick-borne pathogens, because one of the side effects of a tick-borne disease, of many of the tick-borne diseases, is the alpha-gal. And alpha-gal is a protein allergy, a meat protein allergy. So if you have alpha-gal, you cannot actually process red meat at all and so having something like a plant-based alternative would give people who cannot process meat protein an opportunity to get protein and enjoy a hamburger without dying
1: well I could see there you have to make some substitutions
2: no I was just to say is and that is a part of um, our modern culture and being American being spiritual being a, a food eater is everything is a trade-off and everything is about making choices.
1: So the key here, of course, is that you'd like to live a decently long life. And if you watch your diet and don't stick it with McDonald's hamburgers three or four times a day, it'll hopefully help you survive. Now, when it comes to food, Tim is the expert here. He's Hmm. the guy who cooks mostly for his family, although you warm up stuff that you cooked several days before. So (laughs) how about taking over some questioning based on your expertise? (laughs)
13: <laughs> well, yeah, uh, being a uh, being a midwesterner, you know, our our diets are pretty <laughs> and I don't want to say normal, I don't want to say bland, but um, you know, I mean We don't have a lot of exposure to fresh seafood, so, you know, it's always uh, frozen and things like that. But, you know, one of my questions is, based on your research, and of course, you know, we can only know this from historical writings and what's been, you know, dug up and inscribed on cuneiforms, what were some of the first examples of, um, I suppose, uh, 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 cookbooks, Uh, because, you know, eating and food is such a universal thing that I would think that if we knew how to interpret some of the, uh, uh, say, like uh, uh, French uh, uh, prehistoric wall paintings, there'd be a cookbook in there somewhere. So, I mean, how how far back, I mean, uh, do they go?
2: forever. Hmm. Um, as soon as uh, people could start making um, a record of their activity, they started noting recipes. Some hmm. of the earliest ones, there is an example a few years ago of, um, in Egypt They translated a few of the Egyptian pictoglyphs, and it was a recipe for beer. And a couple of very entrepreneurial scientists actually translated that recipe and brewed beer and made beer based off this like thousands of year old Egyptian beer recipe.
1: We'll find out what that beer was like <laughs> in a few months. I didn't taste it. Gene, Tim, and Christina, you're in. This is a paracast.
7: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
13: If you love mysteries, you'll love these two books by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. In Mimics, The Others Among Us, you'll learn about the strange beings that can look like us but are not. In Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, you'll see the hard evidence of UFOs that has been ignored or even hidden. These books will definitely blow your mind, and both are now available
0: Dot com
6: Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. This is Jerome
15: Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast.
1: I would not suggest or begin to suggest... That Tim had some beer before the show begins. But let me tell our listeners very quickly, since we're talking about ancient beer recipes. Do you know, in my long years on this planet, I have never, ever tasted beer. Never. Mm. Seriously.
2: I, okay. I believe it. <laughs>
1: and and well, I believe it too, because it happened.
2: I'm not a fan of beer. I mean, and it's one of those things, it's not to everybody's taste. But yet, it was a really critical thing to do if we think back again in pre-science days. Water was not necessarily always drinkable. And before we had, again, chemical additives and waters coming out of the tap, you always had to boil water. And a good way to ensure that you always had a safe supply of water was beer, small beer is usually what it's called. And so it's a super low alcohol beer. It was given to children and women and everywhere, especially on the American West on the frontiers. Everybody drank a little bit of alcohol because it was a way to get the necessary liquids in you and not the pathogens.
1: Would that alcoholic content make you a little less aware or what?
2: Well, there's a couple historical wags who have suggested that essentially up until the 1920s, most Americans were drunk all the time. Mm. And statistically, especially post-Civil War and that the Great Westward expansion, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, sadly, a number, a large percentage of the population, I think it's not quite 50%, but it's over 30%, of the people were essentially either addicted to opiums or alcoholics.
13: I remember a uh, a story that we did one time of a saddle maker, a small saddle maker factory in southern Indiana that was established in the late 19th and then continued on into the 20th century. The factory actually provided its workers a, a bucket
2: of beer for lunch. Yeah. Every day. I mean, that was common. Yeah, that would have been the equivalent of giving people like the water cooler. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting, Tim, I'm going to go back to something that you had mentioned about being a Midwesterner and that the food kind of culture is a bit bland. You know, there's a religious reason for that. If you look at the Midwest and who settled it, is the United States was initially settled by religious extremists, Protestant fundamentalists, many of them coming from Germany, and they brought their cuisine with them. And traditionally, it was, you know, very stodgy, very meat potatoes and cooked long. But in addition to just the regional cuisine of Germany that folks brought over to the Midwest, they also brought this fundamentalist Protestant notion of no spices because they believed that spices could excite the sexual urgings of people and it could um, affect someone's temper. And so you wanted to keep food very bland so everyone stayed very calm.
13: (laughs) well there's actually um not too far from where I live, maybe about, you know, an hour and a half uh, drive, there is a community called New Harmony. And it had been established by a utopian community called the uh, Harmonist, I think is how they were called. And they actually were the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. They believed in good food. The the leader actually made fun of some of the, I guess, um, Earlier disciplines that, you know, said that you should only eat cabbage and beans and things like that. But instead, they, uh, they told their congregation to eat and enjoy life, especially kids. Kids should uh, eat like uh, five meals a day. So yeah. <laughs> you know, I found that really interesting.
2: So New Harmony has a fascinating history, and I go into it in the book because it, it was started, one, by a German fundamentalist group that in New Harmony, Indiana, and that was their offshoot commune that they built. They originally settled in um, Pennsylvania, and they were winemakers, which was common at the time. The land in Indiana wasn't so great for gr- making a wine and growing wine grapes, so he sold it. So that the New Harm, the Harmonists, sold it to Robert Owens, and that's what you're talking about, who was a un- secular, non-religious, but of that time period in that 1840s-ish, 1830s, this idea of a utopian movement of we could live communally and we could all enjoy the best of life if we just pitched in together, and he bought the old harmony settlement and called it new harmony. And what that was joined in with some of those ideas from Charles Fourier about he who invented this notion of like gastronomy in the sense of deriving absolute pleasure from food. And many of the new religious movements, including say the Hare Krishnas, all look at food opposite of the fundamentalist protestant groups as a singular source of joy that god gives to you and so it's almost it's a sin the other way if you don't enjoy your food you are sinning against god at the
13: beginning of your book you've got um a statement let me look at this here and this comes from the babylonian uh, talmud whoever needs come and eat and I, I like that. Uh, and that that really, you see a lot of societies that that really embrace that idea.
2: Yeah, absolutely. When we think about sharing food. It is an act of trust. If I give you a cookie and you take it, you're trusting that I'm not going to poison you with that cookie. <laughs> um, and so we build that bond together when we're sharing food. And it helps us build our community. And then when you have the food rules, is like Jean and I were talking about at the start of our conversation, that also helps identify our tribe. Who is a member of our safe community and who belongs and who can we bring in? Now, if I start sharing my food with you, if you're hungry and I bring you a meal, you're more willing to listen to my spiel about my revelations of what the Space Brothers have told us or what God told me while I was sitting underneath a tree. And so food is very, Disarming for people. When we share a meal, we um, bond closer together.
13: Well, that's just it. You know, I mean, I've uh, traveled uh, uh, around the world quite a bit, and um, a lot of these uh, the rural places that that we would go to, there would be a number of families who wanted us to come and eat with them, and were just so happy. When we could, and it was just—I mean, uh, some of these families I still remember, and and a few even, you know, uh, remain in communication uh, with for a, a number of years. And it was just that—that that openness, come in, share a meal with us. That is—it's that 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 universal appeal, isn't it?
2: It is. It's so much so that in many Hindu traditions, in the Sikh tradition, in many, many of the Islamic sect traditions is hospitality, offering people meals, and being very kind to strangers is encoded in the spiritual practice. Now, it's not maybe written in like the actual holy book, but in the supplemental cultural uh, practices and, and commentary, the idea of um, offering a meal and sharing a meal is is part of their religious practice. So, if you're a believer and you, your culture has that practice, uh, you're, you're almost looking for a stranger because, that earns you some really goodwill and you have made god very happy if you've shared your dinner with a stranger
1: you know for some reason what may be obvious when i hear this i remember when i first met my first wife's parents now listeners have heard geneva on the show she's remained a friend even though our marriage ended after a few years but i remember when i first flew to her home near birmingham alabama parents thought I was some kind of weirdo. This Jewish guy from New York, does he sleep in a coffin at night? We don't know. I mean, they (laughs) wondered what was this person that her daughter had hooked up with. So my late mother-in-law or ex-mother-in-law, she would cook meals traditional to a Southern family like black eye peas and everything else. And it was just delicious. I always enjoyed the fact that she'd spent hours cooking this stuff. It was really great. A lot of it was healthy. And I felt very close to them as a result of this. I think originally she was doing it out of respect to her daughter's wishes. I think later on she grew to tolerate me because because she sent me instant messages over the years saying, even though you didn't stay married to my daughter, you are still my son-in-law. And I just oh. think, isn't that nice? And I Th- think the meals fine. we had, it is. And I think the meals that we had really made me feel closer to them. Because it made and me feel we- like I was part of the family.
2: And if we think of like the contra example, I think we've all been in a situation, whether it's like an extended family holiday dinner or even sharing a meal at a restaurant where there's the one person who wants to send back every dish, doesn't like anything, doesn't want to eat. And you you can think back and remember the kind of tension that that kind of person, that behavior causes around a shared meal.
1: Let us break here. We'll have more of this with Christina, Tim, and Gene. You're in the
13: Piracast.
7: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
1: Hey, listeners. the paracast. Plus. to learn more about paracast plus
16: That's 818-984-6100
0: shopsupertee.com Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Jane Steinberg.
1: So this becomes a matter of cultural behavior, too. I mean, if you're sharing a meal with friends, family at a restaurant, does constantly setting the meal back cause a rift amongst people? On the other hand, if the restaurant's at fault and they made your steak rare when you wanted it well done or something seriously wrong, it doesn't taste right, certainly you have a right to complain.
2: Oh, you do. And I'm talking about the example, and and I think everyone has experienced it, the someone who's like overly picky and overly picky-yoon about what their tastes and preferences are. And it's a disruptive element, and it's a tension, because our instinctual nature is that we're going to share things and we're going we want to become um, a smaller world, and we want to get to know people. And that's how sharing meals works. And that's why it's so encoded in so many spiritual practices.
13: It makes me. Uh, there was a um, there was a short story written by Gene Shepherd, and I th- it may have been in his book um, "A Fistful of Fig Newtons." I can't I, I can't remember now, but it, it, he he talks about uh, uh, an experience that he had uh, having a meal with a uh, uh, a high school girlfriend at her parents' house, who I think they were of Polish descent, and. Um, the, the story basically is just an almost a, 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 a graphic description of the types of food that they served him and, and he ate and the conversations about the food. And, and that's, that's the entire story.
1: Now at the risk of avoiding confusion here, there are actually two Gene Shepherds that were famous. One was a humorist and radio personality, used to listen to him back in New York. He was the fellow who wrote the book that Tim was talking about here. And the other was a country singer who became pretty famous, was part of the Grand Ole Opry and things like that. And when I worked at a country station as a DJ years ago, I used to play her records. So I just wanted to clarify Gene Shepherd and Gene Shepherd.
13: But you see this in a lot of books and a lot of films that um, devotion to food um, almost like a religion.
2: It's reverent. We are reverent. Yes, with food. There you go. Um, I think that we become, especially in the, the American story, we become Americans through our stomach. When, if we think back to whether somebody made fun of the uh, one kid's lunch um, in the lunch table, but then within a few minutes later, one, everybody wanted to try the food that they never tried before, is going to, like Jean was talking about, going to a family, sharing the meals, eating foods that maybe you've never encountered before. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, this is really tasty. This is delicious. And it expands our minds, and it expands our community. And I think that's how we become more American, especially in a country where, um, you know, aside from indigenous folks, we're coming, all of us are coming from somewhere else.
13: Okay, that's, that is an interesting point, though, uh, because a lot of Europeans make fun of Americans because they say we have no food culture. That our food culture is basically just hamburgers and french fries and hot dogs, and that that's it. But that's not true, is it?
2: Oh, not at all. It's That's a really lazy, lazy analysis. Um, American food culture is rich and diverse and is so vast that it, it, it is hard to call it just American because of all of the different influences, but it becomes American if, with a couple elements, is that once we take a, a food that may have been um, kind of regional to a specific country or geographic area and bring it to the United States, the core ingredients are going to change based on what can grow here and what we have available here. And so that dish is going to change. And then we add all the other elements to it. I love what's happening. And you see the fusion. Korean tacos, who would have mm. thought, right? That's They're fantastic. Um, but no one in Seoul and no one in Mexico City probably thought of that. It had to come to the United States before you know we could mix it all together and make it into something unique and new.
6: One thing,
1: of course, it's very common for foods to be altered here. So, for example, you get Chinese food. And most people love Chinese food. But coming to America, you don't really get the authentic Chinese food. There are differences. There are differences. I'll give you an example of one restaurant that we go to quite often. It's called Asian Cafe Express. In Mesa, Arizona, it is, I would say, what they call a Hong Kong-style menu. But they actually have two menus. They have the Hong Kong-style menu, and you've got elaborate kinds of seafood, including squid, by the way. And you have an AZ-style menu, which is the more Americanized versions of the food. So they're trying to give you a flavor as much as you can in this country a flavor of the real thing from Hong Kong and the version that we have here, the Americanized food where it's all chop suey and chow mein.
2: Yeah, and there's this idea of what is authentic then because um, Chinese cooks and Chinese restaurants have been in the United States for nearly 150 years. And so just like a religion um, has a schism, So too has food cultures, had had schisms. So Chinese food in America is now its own distinct thing. American Chinese is its own cuisine. American Italian is its own thing, sometimes called New Jersey Italian. And the meals and the recipes and the different types of dishes that have been developed here, sure, they're rooted in a culture and a spiritual practice in many cases, but they're not the exact same thing, because in America, we cherry-pick what we want, and we make it our own. I'm thinking, too, is one of the emerging cuisines, I, you know, Indian food is great. For a lot of people, their first introduction to Indian food was from the Hare Krishnas, both in the free meals at the temples, and as well as the many cookbooks that the Hare Krishnas published. Hare Krishna food is sweeter than quote unquote traditional Indian cuisine. Why? Well, that's because Prabhupada, the founder, had a sweet tooth. He loved mm. sweets. And so all the recipes from a Hare Krishna uh, perspective are a little sweeter than quote unquote authentic Indian food. Yet that is our introduction to it. So that's is what becomes much more more comfortable and recognizable. And so we're seeing American Indian food becoming its own distinct thing um, and different than regional indian cuisine from north india and south india
1: now that's interesting too that indian food i don't think it's caught on near as much as italian food or chinese food that's unfortunate i think because there's some really incredible things there and i've had north indian south indian the different variations is there a reason for that
2: Oh, it's coming. Just as um, if you grew up like I did in the 70s, there wasn't a Taco Tuesday, but now we have Taco Tuesday. It's not because tacos weren't invented. It's just that it wasn't culturally, we weren't aware as much as we are now about the different types of cuisines available, the different ways to eat. As we become more aware and more of the Indian diaspora comes to the United States and we all start mixing together as we so wonderfully do, we're seeing more and more um, Indian restaurants and Indian cuisine and Indian fast food and Indian processed food um, popped up. We had a, I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and was at the grocery store and saw uh, curry pizza. Mm. Fantastic.
1: Well, here in Arizona, the Safeways had for a time this dish with an Indian style curry, a heat and serve dish, Indian style curry with what looked like a non bread of some kind. And it was delicious, but it only lasted a month or two. And then they stopped carrying it. I suppose because people weren't getting it. Like they offer teriyaki chicken, I guess that continues to sell. So maybe we're not quite ready here in Arizona. Give it 10 I years. I, I will. Think give it a
2: decade. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we're going to start seeing like samosa Saturdays.
1: <laughs> We've got Christina Tim and Jean. You're in the Paracast. Hey listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. Once again, theParacast.plus. Prices are just dollar a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theParacast.plus
6: to learn more about Paracast Plus. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. Do
4: you know someone with a drug or alcohol problem? Get help now. Insurance may cover everything. Stop the drug and alcohol nightmare.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Or Chicken Tika Mondays.
2: Mm. Right. And that, I think, is... Uh, Again, how we become American, we start taking all of the different influences and marrying them together in new ways. And that is how all the new religious movements that some became cults and all these new cuisines influenced and the culture influences the religion. The religion influences the food. The food influences the culture. There's no clean lines here. It all influences each other, but it can only happen in the United States because of how we are essentially set up, how we're structured with our First Amendment and our tax laws and our founding by fundamentalists has really set the stage or set the table, if we want to belabor the food analogies, to get us to where we are today, which is a really cuisine-diverse community, as well as a spiritually diverse community.
1: I'm always interested in the origins of different kinds of food, like bagels. Everybody Mm -hmm. eats bagels, but I'll tell you a little bit, here that seems to affect things supposedly the content of new york water new york city water the various elements of which it consists make bagels distinct from other cities in fact there is a company out there that provides a filtering system where they filter the water to have the same chemical makeup as new york city water And you make your bagels with that. And of course, that gives the bakery a chance to say genuine New York bagels. I think that applies also to pizza, genuine New York pizza, but you got to have the water
2: yeah you know there's there's definitely thoughts and analysis about the the New York water makes the bagels. I would argue that it doesn't as much as it does both technique and environment, just like tawar that you know the four wines different grapes need to grow in different places to be called a certain kind of grape is If anybody's a baker out there, you'll know that on a high humidity day, your bread's going to turn out different than on a low humidity day. And so it's really a lot of it is the geography, the ambient, the environment is that helps influence, especially when it comes to baking. So I think there's a lot of marketing involved with the whole idea of that. Only, Only New York bagels are real bagels and only in New York can you make a New York style bagel. Well,
1: then again, they're able to market these filtering systems. Even right. if the core logic is lacking, if it does what it pretends to do, at least they could say, well, this and the way we're making it is a real New York bagel. There's a place about 20 minutes from here called Banjornos, which is owned by two New York residents, one who is the chef at one of the New York City fire departments, the other... His son-in-law took chef's training in college and they make pretty darn good bagels and I'm not getting paid for this by the way.
11: <laughs> when, I, when I
1: go there I pay the same as you do. They have made bagels that taste closer to New York than I've ever seen out here. Most of the bagels are simply flavorless or taste like straw.
2: Yeah. They have technique issues, I would say. But here's like the interesting thing when we talk about bagels. Bagels are a very specific tied to Ashkenazi, Eastern European Judaism. That style of boiling and then baking is a regional uh, style from beyond the pale, from that region in Eastern Europe. And in the pogroms in the late 1800s, when so many European Jews immigrated to the United States, they brought their food with them. And they set up, you know, the bagel bakeries to provide, pe- you know, initially just to provide their own Jewish community with bagels, with that the familiar food stuff. But of course, you're in America, so everybody wants to try and eat it. And now bagels are really part of American cuisine. And I love that story, but I only wish the same thing happened with knishes, because I love knishes, and those are harder to find outside of New York.
1: I remember in the early days, one of my close friends who was interested in ufos guy named marty he came from a family of bagel bakers and in the early days it doesn't happen now there was a bagel bakers union okay and to get in the union you had to be the son the cousin the relative that's how you do it now by the way this is interesting here i'm looking over on google why are bagels better in new york city A regular bagel is the water you boil them in. Much like a specific vineyard is used to make a wine, certain minerals in New York City tap water are attributed to creating the best bagels. These include low concentrations of calcium and magnesium and a high level of sediment. Now, is, is that something that fits with what you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's similar. I mean, so the water content and the different minerality. But again, I would say that's only a small part of it, especially in in, uh, America where our water filtration systems are. There's a fairly universality. Some of them are are much more um, chemical purified than others. But, you know, it has something to do with it. But I would say if you had just good solid water and knew what you were doing with your techniques, you could produce a really good New York style bagel. I'm confident.
1: What about knishes? Is that a problem? I have not. I have not tasted knishes that are really good. Like a baked knish is good. Mm -hmm. But when they tried to duplicate the so-called Coney Island knish, which is fried, then it never seems to work.
2: I agree with you. Baked knishes are traditional and are the way to go, but it, it, the example is I personally like them, but it hasn't caught on in the same way that a bagel did, even though it was, came over with the Eastern European J- Jewish diaspora around the same time. It just hasn't caught on in the same way. I would welcome everybody who's listening. If you've never had a knish, eat a knish. They're great. <laughs> How could you go wrong with a little pastry-covered potato and onion? They're fantastic.
1: Mm. Well, they do have other canishes like meat canishes, kasha kanishas, things they like do. that.
2: Yes. I was, I was thinking the most traditional, which is, of course, the potato kanish.
1: Well, we used to have, by the way, a kosher style restaurant here in Arizona called Chompy's. It's still there. But what they did is they sold part of it out to a private equity company. And for some reason, the quality has deteriorated. There was another place, another chain called NYPD Pizza. Two brothers or cousins from Queens, New York, came to Arizona to make genuine New York pizza. And I don't know what pizza is. We used to have pizza places in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. You You walk three blocks, there are three pizza shops, a deli, bagels, everything like that. And it was really good. And then they sold the company as it expanded. And then the quality went kaput.
2: Well, that's the American way. Um, As soon as we get venture capital involved, it's it's no longer about the food itself or about any ideas or culture that form the food. It's just about making money and making profit. And
1: sometimes a company will buy out a chain for the real estate value of the properties. The same is true, by the way, for things like Kmart and Sears. They were purchased by somebody who cared more about the value of the properties than in providing good merchandise at a decent price it's too bad we have christina tim and gene you're in the pericast
7: thank you for listening to gcn be sure to visit gcnlive.com today
5: USA News, I'm Tim Berg.
10: Former President Donald Trump appealed the Colorado Supreme Court's decision removing him from the ballot to the U.S. Supreme Court. The high court quickly agreed to decide the case. Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul agrees with the court's decision.
3: Without question, the Supreme Court has to hear it. When I hear that it's going to be uh, almost a month, though, until the hearing, and perhaps longer to the ruling, I'm concerned that even that's too long. I think there needs to be an emergency injunction to shut down any of the states that are wanting to do this.
10: Millions along the East Coast are under a winter weather. Millions along the East Coast are under winter weather alerts this weekend. Forecasters say a storm will dump a mix of rain and snow in some cities, like New York and Washington D.C. While well, Boston could get slammed with at least six inches of snow, while other parts of upstate New York could get over a foot of snow. This is USA News.
8: It's obvious the unthinkable continues. Most Americans know something very wrong is happening. People in charge keep telling you that everything's fine and to stop noticing. But you know better. That's why self-reliant folks are investing in emergency food storage. And you should, too. My Patriot Supply. The nation's largest emergency preparedness company are the ones you can trust. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners averaging over 2,000 calories per day. People often write to tell us what has happened for them since
10: starting Extendivite. Allow me to read a few. In one month, my blood pressure dropped significantly. I no longer get chest pain after exercise. It's amazing, and I ordered my second bottle. The reviews are spot on. My target is to get off BP meds, and if it keeps going like this, I see a light at the end of the tunnel. So far, a great product is what it claims to be great product. A few days in and I could feel a difference for certain. Not checking medical stats yet. I know this is really working by how I feel. We'll continue to take this product. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit Extendivite.com That's X-T-E-N-D-O-V-I-T-E dot com Extend your life
11: with Extend.
4: This is James Fox,
0: director of The Phenomenon and Moment of Contact. You're listening to The Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: But I don't want to criticize the Americanization of food. It's just that when people take over restaurants with the concern of making a profit more than actually selling great food, something happens. Because people who own restaurants, family restaurants, that's your life. They work Absolutely. day and night to keep that restaurant going. And it's not because the restaurants open from 11 a.m. till 8 p.m. to serve lunch and dinner. It's that they got there six hours before to prepare everything. Even in fast food places like a Little Caesars, they make the dough on the premises. They have to get there three, four hours before the place opens to be ready for customers.
2: Yeah, an interesting, a convergence from what we were speaking about earlier, I had mentioned that Heaven's Gate, who were primarily vegetarian, vegan, nearly, yet on their final meal, the last day, they were entirely human. And instead of following a very you know, healthy vegan diet, they got chicken pot pie takeout from Boston Market.
1: And you see what happened, Boston Market's dead now. Right, so
2: maybe Heaven's Gate had something to do with that, or the Space Brothers.
1: Ah, I like to look more into traditions of food, and we understand, of course, cults may have their own version. We've seen, if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, there are certain traditions, which for many reasons come very close to one another. What other interesting traditions are there in terms of food?
2: If we look to the east, um, especially on the Indian subcontinent, I'm thinking of one of the most ancient beliefs, traditions, and it's called Jainism, J-A-I-N, Jain, and Jains are an extreme vision of veganism. They believe in ahisma, this notion that you should cause no pain, no suffering to any living thing anywhere. And so that translates to how they treat food. Of course, they're not going to eat any animal proteins because that would harm the animal. But they go so as far as they won't eat any root vegetables because that would kill the plant. So essentially, they're eating leafy greens and lots of fruit that the plant produces and can still remain alive. And that is not an uncommon kind of notion, this idea taken to that extreme. In other traditions in India with the the of Buddhism, you know, it wasn't for everyday people who were believers or practitioners of Buddhism, but if you were a monk, you could only eat food that you begged that was given to you, and all the monks would go out in the morning and you couldn't eat past noon. You had one meal a day and you had to beg for it. And even in these ancient times thousands of years ago, people were not always kind and would purposely give monks rancid food or, you know, terrible tasting food. But because of the belief, the monks would eat it because they weren't going to waste it. Everything, even the worst of it, was, you know, a gift from the universe. And some of these ideas about fasting and restriction and what you can eat and what you can't eat... There are variations on that throughout the world. And almost every spiritual practice has some sort of version of feasting and fasting and some sort of restriction.
1: Is there a medically sound reason to fast?
2: There can be. Absolutely. Depending on how long a fast is for, it can give the digestive system kind of a break. If we're snacking all the time, our digestive system is working all the time, and that's pulling energy away from your brain, um, your brain being the largest consumer of energy in the body. And so oftentimes by fasting, we give the body a break and we can often find ourselves feeling a little more energized in other parts of our body because that energy isn't going to to our stomach. Longer fasts are very much tied to different religious traditions because if you go without food long enough, you will hallucinate. And in that hallucination, many people have discovered a spiritual practice or a spiritual seeking to speak to God or to an ascended master or to a guardian angel. And so that is another reason that fasting becomes really a critical thing in modern new religious practices. It's a way to get closer to your deity.
1: So what is the tradition behind Yom Kippur to fast for that day?
2: All food is a gift from God, and so if God takes the food away, it's a punishment. And so to prevent God from starving people, from causing a famine, it is better to atone and to fast and to recognize that you have sinned, and that you may have offended God. Before he takes the food away from you, you're going to apologize and give up the food in recognition for all the good that he has. And it's a way to, in that cultural practice, to, again, recognize your own human failings and to say, don't take away all our food, God. We're going to just give it up for a day. And we'll show you that we are capable of being better humans because we love you. And that is where that tradition comes from.
13: Speaking of fasting, there was years ago when I was a kid, there was an episode of The Night Gallery, which was a a TV show by Rod Serling called The Sin Eaters. And it always impressed me, and you have a part in your book about sin eaters. Yes. You you, you want to describe that to people? Because I don't
2: think that that is a concept that, that a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, Many of the Christian traditions have this notion of sin, of that if you are violating the rules of the church, you're violating the commandments, you're violating God's law, is that you will be punished for it. In the Catholic tradition, there was a way to kind of trade off if you confess and then you do something to make up for it, say a Hail Mary or something. So that's the origination of that. You can essentially offset your sins in many ways. In the Protestant tradition that changed a little bit and combined with some of the rural pagan traditions, that someone who died and had not been confessed, who had not confessed their sins, was going to go directly to hell. Because if your soul was unclean, then that was your only option after death. But you could circumvent that by having a sin eater. In different traditions, there were sin eaters who essentially, in the Catholic tradition for, like, say, the Medicis and during the medieval time, the Medicis would go to their priest, confess their sins, but they wouldn't do the penance. They would hire somebody to do the penance for them. And that was a version of sin eating. The other sin eating traditions, which you saw in England, especially in Wales, was uh, for food oriented. Where someone would bake a small cake, and it was representational of the sins of the person who died, and someone designated by the community, often very much an outcast, would be paid to eat that cake that was representational of all the sins of that person and allow that person to go to heaven. Other traditions have similar things. Um, The Dutch, there's dead cakes, and that was a cookie that was made with the initials and the death date of the person that people ceremoniously kind of ate. Some people didn't eat them. They would save them and become odd souvenirs. In Bavaria, people would bake a cake, a special cake that was to be consumed over the actual dead body and representational for that family and friends of Eating the sins of that person, and again, those traditions have died off a long, long time ago. Though I think that the concept of it is still alive today, in looking essentially for that scapegoat, for someone else to uh, share the burden of the penance. Well, even though people aren't, you know, people aren't eating the sins, it, it makes me
13: wonder whether or not the tradition of having a meal after a funeral kind of stems from that.
2: It, it it's it's really it's related to it. It's related in the sense that when someone dies um, in, during any type of burial ceremony and that that religious kind of ceremony that goes along with it, um, it's still a celebration of God and we want to thank God then for accepting this soul into heaven. And so it becomes that shared meal to show off. And again, that got side railed a little bit with um, the in the Amish communities in the early 1900s. Um, you had to feed everyone who came to a funeral and people then saved their best and the families would save up say their best ham to only be served at your funeral we've
1: got so much more to talk about holy food with christina Jean, and tim you're in the Paracast.
7: thank you for listening to gcn
11: At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. Opening a My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal record and interactive tools tailored for you. You can see if you are eligible to receive benefits, view spousal benefit estimates, and compare retirement benefit estimates at different ages or dates when you want to start receiving benefits. Already receiving benefits? Use your account to change your address, set up or change direct deposit, get a proof of income letter, and more. In most states, you can also request a replacement social security card. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov myaccount my account. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense.
0: Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of A.D. After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold
16: standard of paranormal radio.
1: In our previous segment, Christina was talking about Amish traditions.
2: We were talking about um, just different ways of celebrating death and how people in older times kind of dealt with that with their food. And the Amish got themselves into a little bit of trouble within their community because it became then a display of wealth and arrogance. So the richest, the richer you were, the bigger the feast that you were supposed to put out. And if you wanted to really um, kind of flout your clout in your community. You made sure and uh, served only the best and most expensive kinds of foods at a funeral for your family members. Well, food and death really do
13: go hand in hand. I think of like, you know, ancient societies who would bury their dead with food.
2: Yeah, absolutely, to take to the other world to them. And if we think about even the, um, just the messaging and the, the iconic image of the Christian's transubstantiation, this notion that as a believer, if you're a, of any Christian belief, that the body of Christ is represented in this unleavened piece of bread and the wine is the blood. So from our very earliest religious beliefs we imbue the food with religion and with that belief.
13: I always found that extremely bizarre the you know the uh, body of Christ and the blood of Christ coming from a Jewish tradition which was very you know anti cannibalism and drinking of <laughs> blood yet there it was. And became, you know, like such a such a strong part of the
2: heresy of Christianity, right? And yet, if you look back to even a quote unquote primitive cultures, is it was actually much more common to actually cannibalize and eat a part of the body of the deceased person eat part of their brain the idea was that the wisdom that was held within that person would be transmitted to the person who consumed them and from that very primitive idea is this notion of the body of christ the blood of christ so we are never so far away from our very very earliest almost neanderthal type traditions
13: one of the interesting things about american food american cuisines is that we have a lot of foods that that practically everybody probably has in their household that actually originated from a and I don't want to say a a, a, a cultist belief but from really a, a kind of a, you know a, an extreme religious belief and the one the first thing that comes into my mind is like cornflakes
2: right cornflakes um are come out of the tradition of the seventh-day adventists Mm -hmm. the seventh-day adventists were a christian spiritualist group um And they, too, believed in no spices, nothing to excite the systems. And um, if we think, too, about the cuisine of that time period in that post-Civil War 1800s, is it was a lot of stodgy kind of food. Things that would, not to put it too indelicately, kind of bind you up. Hmm. And so when we think about bodies should be clean and the cleaner the body, right? The closer to God. Um, and so, you know, being constipated was considered really not good, not good physically and not good spiritually. And so a lot of the Seventh-day Adventist cuisine, they, uh, they kind of put forward and invented the graham crackers, Kellogg's, bran flakes were really about trying to make you poop. Speaking of
1: well, Kellogg's the- cornflakes, how did that become a commercial product?
2: Um, the Kellogg brothers um, kind of had a fight over this. They separated their—because uh, one was running the Seventh-day Adventist sanitarium and invented the actual cornflakes, the brand flakes. Um, and then the other brother wasn't as much of a Seventh-day Adventist believer, but liked the product and saw the commercial value and wanted to start the the business end of it. And that's where that separated. And that's how that got started is that they took the idea and figured out how to monetize it and how to process it and how to market it and bring it to everyone.
1: And then they added sugar.
2: And then they <laughs> added sugar because, you know, you can only be so healthy.
1: I don't know. I kind of they- gave up mostly on dry cereals. As I said, currently I go for oatmeal.
2: All You know, anytime you're eating like a whole grain, um, you're good. That's good for your body. It's good for the system. Keeps you clean as a whistle.
1: Don't get too graphic.
2: <laughs>
13: <laughs> well, there, there was one of the, the other aspect about a lot of those types of foods, cornflakes and stuff, is that it was supposed to... Keep your animal urges
2: down yes <laughs> so, to be delicate about it <laughs> right And that's why no spices, nothing to you know no heat um, and everything is just kind of bland uh, and that was the idea. It was the um, cuisine equivalent of putting saltpeter into your food.
1: Oh getting graphic again. What about things like Cheerios, <laughs> those little circular things? Is that come out of a similar tradition?
2: It, it comes out of the tradition, but it's not married to, a, like, the Seventh-day Adventists and Kellogg's have that direct relationship. It was more that different companies saw how popular uh, the Kellogg's flakes were and were coming up then with their own versions of it. And so Cheerios being a version of that made of oats. Hmm.
13: Oaks, oats were considered... Uh uh non non fiery to the soul maybe
2: (laughs) yes they were they were benign they were benign to the soul there you go
13: that's a good word
2: (laughs) um and and that's where a lot of these food traditions then come from the seventh day adventist we talked about earlier is little debbie little debbie snack cakes that comes out of the seventh day adventist tradition they are now they have chocolate but if you ate those earlier it's like pre late 70s or 80s when the company got bought out by just a normal commercial processor they weren't using a lot of chocolate because chocolate was considered a stimulant. they were using carob which um, if anybody grew up in a, a kind of a quote unquote hippie household you kn- you know about carob and it's essentially it's a plant that is processed and powdered and it tastes a little like chocolate but more like dirt. And so there are many people who grew up eating carob as children um, who are traumatized by it and refuse to eat it to this day. But we were talking earlier, like Morningstar brand, Worthington brand, all started by the Seventh-day Adventists. In the modern era, if anybody is enjoying kettle potato chips, kettle potato chips were started by the 3HO, the Happy, Holy, Healthy organization, which was founded by Yogi Bajan in Los Angeles.
1: I'm looking here, of course, at the Kellogg's website, all mm. the various brands now. And I guess, what is this, a public corporation now? So It is. It is so far away from the original founding, you can't believe it. Frosted flakes, because a tiger will eat it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you're supposed to have the energy of a tiger by eating the frosted flakes.
1: <laughs> of course, one thing that made these early products very popular, especially on TV, is when the television star would have the meal. Like I think Kellogg's Cornflakes sponsored The Adventures of Superman. So you'd have these ads where Clark Kent and Jimmy Olsen would have their breakfast. But you'd never see Lois Lane there because in those days you couldn't imply. That Lois Lane was somehow staying in the same apartment as Clark and Jimmy.
2: Well, and um, my previous book is called American Advertising Cookbooks How Corporations Taught Us to Love Spam, Bananas, and Jello. So there is a whole history of um, using advertising and using you know, what we would probably call influencer messaging uh, today to sell you products. And Batman and Robin is a great example of that because what kid watching Batman and Robin wouldn't want to eat exactly what they're eating um, because who doesn't want to be Batman? Everybody wants to be Batman. And that idea um, and then using like mascots and other types, of whether it's movie stars or TV stars or characters or characters created just to sell a product, those all tend to um, catch our imagination and then make us more interested in that particular food.
1: But that's long ago and far away. I don't think on any TV show I watch now do I see the stars hanging out, having a McDonald's hamburger or having Kellogg's Corn Flakes or some other similar product, you don't see that marketing, that direct marketing as much now. We have Christina, Jean, and Tim. You're in the Paracast.
7: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
13: Do you love reading about the mysteries of the universe? Do you wonder what secrets are hidden in the shadows of our own planet? If so, you won't want to miss these two amazing books by Tim R. Swartz and Sean Castile. In Mimics, the Others Among Us, you'll explore the world of the mimics of man, beings that can look like us but are not. They've been among us since the beginning of history, hiding in plain sight, influencing our culture in ways we can scarcely imagine. In Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters, you'll discover the so-called hard evidence of UFOs that's been available for study this entire time, but for the most part has been ignored. These two books will open your eyes to a hidden reality that has been right in front of our eyes all along. That's Mimics, The Others Among Us, and Alien Artifacts, Incredible Evidence of Exotic Material from UFO Encounters by Tim R. Schwartz and Sean Castile. Available now on Amazon.com.
12: I had no idea it would destroy my life. But before it happened, I had a successful business in Austin, Texas. Everyone laughed at me when I shut that business down, but I could not ignore the wake-up call.
0: the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Jane Steinberg.
1: I wonder what Tim Swartz had to eat to sound like that. <laughs> Christina, I'm few- going to bring up a subject here about the fact that years ago, especially 40s, 50s, I guess partly 60s, the star of your favorite show would be there to push the product. The sponsors would directly sponsor a TV show to bring it in their image. Like, for example, when Kellogg's acquired sponsorship rights for Adventures of Superman, they kind of dumbed it down and made it more amenable to children. They they had influence on the product. Today, you don't see that.
2: You don't see it as much because of the evolution and awareness of what advertising and communications can do to people, how much influence and how it can warp people. So now actually there are rules through the Federal Trade Commission as well as some of the uh, broadcast um, service commissions in the United States that have rules for advertisers on what they can say and what they can't say, as well as product placements. So when it comes to product placements in television shows and um movies, that's actually a lucrative thing. You'll actually see products, but then those companies have paid a a large amount to get those products on the screen and in the hands of whatever character you're seeing. And fewer companies are wanting or willing to pay that much money. Tim?
13: You were talking earlier about uh, Carib (laughs) <laughs> I remember in the 70s, there was a uh, um, um, a health food store not too far from where I live that sold carob, and I have no idea how people could eat that stuff. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it, it, it it doesn't taste good, but it also no. goes to like taste in general. If you mm. grew up with something, uh, many times you be you do develop a taste for it, where you can go somewhere else. I I'm in Wisconsin, and I think of those Minnesotans who eat lutefisk, and oh. uh ugh, right instinctually. <laughs> ugh. But there's people that love it. They grew up with it. They like the taste. It also bonds them as part of their community. And for all the reasons we're talking about, of why people embrace a specific food, lutefisk is a really good example. Um, carob, on the other hand, that had more of kind of the health, the health fad element to it, as well as a small religious component. Because the alternate name for carob is often the plant is referred to um, as St. John's bread. Uh because the story goes that uh John the Baptist as wandering in the dent uh the desert found the plant and was able to live on that um and that's what kept him alive.
13: I remember my my dad used to talk about um during the depression, um, they would drink postum. I think yes. is what it was. Yes. And that uh he said that he actually acquired a taste for it. And uh, even, even though he said it didn't taste anything like coffee, but they would drink it like coffee. And, you know, it's one of those, it's, it's like you said, it's one of these things is kind of uh, um, um, people didn't drink it for taste, they drank it out of necessity.
2: Well, in the case of Postum, Postum was invented and marketed by the Seventh-day Adventist Church because, again, a a no-stimulant people, that was, they invented, it's a chicory, kind of a chicory blend of, Um, because they did not allow people to drink coffee. Coffee was a stimulant. You couldn't have coffee, but people love having coffee. So they came up with Postum as an alternate to coffee. And that's where a lot of, in the American sense, in the modern sense of these food brands, why we know about them, why they got started by these religious groups and these new religious movements and these cults, was to help the people who were following. Say if you're a new believer um, and you're supposed to give up coffee, just hard, cold, stop coffee, that could be an impediment to you joining the religion. But if they offered you a substitute that you could go in the grocery store and buy, that made it a little bit easier. The same thing for like their morning star and the fake meats we were talking about earlier. Anything that can make it easier for someone to join your religious practice is beneficial to that group. And that's why people published cookbooks and they produce these foods to help believers and help recruit new believers.
1: Spam. Well, Let me do the spam thing. Okay. Let's bring up spam. Now the most interesting thing about spam is the Monty Python flying circus skit spam, 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 etc." And then of course we have spam as the name for junk email. It's spam. It's junk. Mm-hmm. But there is a real product from Hormel called spam, which I assume is mostly ham-based.
2: It's, por- it's mostly pork-based. It's mostly fat is what it is. Um, so we, we have to go, we got to go into the time machine back to a very long time ago. So to preserve food, you had very limited choices one of the ways to preserve a meat was to essentially what they called potting it and it is making it putting it in a receptacle and covering it with a layer of fat to keep the oxygen out now that doesn't last forever just like that but it lasts a few more days and if you can make your food last a couple of days longer that means you're not going to starve with the technology and the advent of canning actual canning you could can meat and now we're in a place where Meat has always been expensive, but if we use, like, kind of the in ways, the out ways, the through ways, the throwaways, um, and repurpose that and put it into a new shape, add a lot of fat and salt, um, it helps preserve it and it helps make it taste better, and it is spam. Now, Hormel still makes spam, but at that time, from that late 1800s, to really the heyday to World War Two, is every meatpacking company in the United States produced some sort of canned meat. We'll still see Vienna sausages, uh, canned hash, uh, ham dingers. Um, there were even canned hamburgers. It's gone out of fashion, but it served a legitimate purpose for the time um, as well as became part of a cuisine.
13: And there's still... I mean, uh, Hawaii, the Philippines, spam
2: is an essential part of their diets there. Right, because post-World War II, so much spam got just left behind by American soldiers, and then it was distributed to the people, um, who, again, were, were not in great shape because of the years and years of war. And so it was a good, solid food stuff. You could get a lot of calories out of a piece of spam. And again, we talked about loot fist. You grow up with it, become used to it. You actually enjoy it. Um, and then you start incorporating it. And that's why if you're in Hawaii, you can get like spam sushi and spam on pizza. Uh, and you know, people incorporate different types of foodstuffs all the time to make it into a brand new thing.
1: But how did spam become synonymous with junk email? (laughs)
2: That I have no idea. I think that is some Silicon Valley lore story that we'll have to uncover somewhere. Because I think the the only logical explanation is that um, it's not a great healthy food. It's also really cheap. So if you were eating spam on the regular, it kind of meant that you didn't have access to a higher quality of food. So it became um, a shorthand for something that was very low quality.
1: I found an explanation, by the way, and in a Good. sense I was right. It says here the name comes from a Monty Python sketch in which the name of the canned pork product, Spam, is ubiquitous, unavoidable, and of course repetitive. Okay. So it's Monty Python's fault.
2: <laughs> that we have junk meal? Okay,
1: I'll blame them. Nah, well, you'll blame them for the name. <laughs> They're not responsible for the mail. (laughs) But I think it might be on YouTube, by the way, the spam sketch from Monty Python. It is hilarious beyond belief what they would do. They would take simple words and just make fun out of them. It was amazing of the things that happened. (laughs) We can do a whole show on Monty Python, but then this is not that kind of show. We're talking about right. culture here, the culture of food, holy food. And we've got a lot more to talk about with Christina Ward. And Gene and Tim, you're in
13: The podcast.
1: Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code.
0: coming of the protectors find out more at rockoids.com that's rockoids r-o-c-k-o-i-d-s dot com
8: it's obvious the unthinkable continues most americans know something very wrong is happening people in charge keep telling you that everything's fine and to stop noticing but you know better that's why self-reliant folks are investing in emergency food storage you should too my patriot supply the nation's largest emergency preparedness company
14: com gcnfood.com.
0: we'd like to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the paracast send it to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to visit our famous paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com
1: i should tell you listeners that usually after we record this show tim and i prepare for dinner Like I said, I take the microwave and throw things in there. Tim will make something. And I always ask Tim, after we have our after-show discussion, what he's having
13: for dinner. What's for dinner tonight, Tim? (laughs) Uh, Well, tonight, since we're getting uh, uh, in the evening with uh, recording time, everybody else has eaten. So I will probably make ramen which, I mean, there's a whole cultural thing right there in the United States with ramen.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's And it's really taken off. If you look at, uh, again, I mentioned I'm in Wisconsin. A few years ago, there was a restaurant that served what they called Wisconsin ramen. And mm. it had bratwurst in it.
13: Oh, now that's interesting.
2: <laughs> exactly. And that that's the American way, kids. You know, we take what we like and we change it up and we mix it up into something new.
1: Hmm. It becomes hash. It it, it becomes American. (laughs) So what's for dinner tonight, Christina?
2: Dinner tonight is going to be a garden vegetable soup. I made that the uh, extra a uh, couple days ago and I'm working on in the oven if you came if you were in my house right now it would smell like onions cuz I'm doing a french style slow roasted onions with red wine Ooh. a little salt garlic and then tomorrow those slow roasted onions will become a french onion soup. Aha. Uh-huh. I'm okay. an okay cook. That sounds really good, though. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, it's winter here, finally winter. And so there's nothing in my mind like a hearty, like hot soup or, or stew, something like that, that kind of sticks to your ribs that really feels satisfying in winter. Ah,
1: my wife will have chicken noodle soup from Safeway. <laughs> it's really good. I don't know about other states, it's just here in Arizona. They provide it's heated chicken noodle soup, several other varieties. And what we do is we let it cool down, stick it in the fridge, and three or four minutes before we're ready, we throw it in the microwave and push the button. Let me ask you a question (laughs) here. If we're going into cooking and everything, I understand a lot of meals, they do okay. Is there a trick to making pizza taste decent in the microwave if you don't want to use the (laughs) oven?
2: No, there's not. But I will offer you um, a different solution. If you have an air fryer, you can get a really nice, um, warms it up and keeps it crisp if you use the air fryer. Conversely, you could also just put a dab of olive oil in a frying pan and stick it in the frying pan, put a lid on it. And that kind of gives it a little different texture, but warms it up nicely and doesn't give you that really super hot, gooey, gummy, but still like rubbery pizza feel that if you do it in the microwave.
1: So of course, when Domino's has a commercial showing that someone who buys pizza throws it in the microwave to warm it up, they're misleading you.
2: Well, I mean, it, there's nothing stopping anyone from putting it in the microwave. I'm just saying it's not an optimized taste experience.
1: Okay, well, where can we go from there? I don't know. Now,
2: also, also preparing <laughs> scratch food these pizza days. every night.
1: <laughs> the way I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, there was a place, a slaughterhouse, I guess, where my mother would buy chicken. They would take the chicken. They would kill them on site. They would cut them up, prepare them for sale, and we get fresh chicken. That's fresh chicken, as fresh as you can get. Okay, they had chicken farms. Nowadays, of course, it's packaged by somebody and shipped from somewhere unknown, and who knows what they do with it.
2: Yeah, I think that... People, if they have the opportunity and are going to eat meat, should seek out the most locally sourced meats, and that includes chickens. Um, if you're in a larger city, that's much easier. I mean, I know exactly where the local chicken farm butchery is, and it's not that far. It's in the city. The challenge and what's happening in all these industrial farms and industrial meat packing, is a spread of pathogens, and that's why we're seeing so many outbreaks of um, E. coli and other foodborne pathogens. And it's something that you alluded to earlier, Gene, is when money trumps the quality of the food, people suffer.
1: Except for those who own the company and their stockholders.
2: Somehow, I don't think they're buying Kansas spam. They're probably getting, you know, the highest quality, locally organic, least amount of chemical type foods. I'm nearly sure of it.
1: Now, if you go into the supermarket and it says organic, like I said with the bananas, how do I know? It's just a label. Anybody can print a label. How do I know that this ground beef is organic, this isn't, these bananas are organic and these aren't?
2: So it really depends. If you're going to the Safeway, there aren't any controls. Anybody could probably label something. But if you're going more to um, a locally owned market or a a um, co-op, quote-unquote, a health food store, there are actual regional organizations that certify organic farms. And you'd have to do a little bit research. And so it wouldn't just say organic. It would have the label or the mark of that regional organic authorizing authority. In the Midwest, it's called MOSES, M-O-S-E-S. And so if it has the MOSES sign on it, then you know that that particular item is verified from it organic farm. And that is how you would know the difference.
4: Well,
1: I'll look for it, but of course you'll pay a lot more.
2: You will pay a lot more because so much money from corporate food and corporate farming, it's its all subsidized. It's purposefully made cheap because people, they want you to buy it. And so it's a bit of a racket that way. Um, and so real food does cost money because it costs money to grow, whether it's a meat protein or a plant protein or whatever, it costs money and it costs labor and it costs time. And I think that if um, we actually paid a little bit more attention to what food actually costs, um, we may change some of our dietary habits.
1: Well, of course, a lot of people go to the fast food restaurant. They go to the McDonald's, Burger King, Carl's Jr., Hardee's, whatever. What's the quality of their foods? I mean, the restaurants seem Terrible. to be clean. That's, Terrible.
2: It's poor. It's poor because most of that beef isn't beef. Say in a Hardee's hamburger, it's it's a lot of filler. Um, I don't know the percentages off the top of my head, but that is how they're able to, you know, keep people coming and reduce their their own costs so they can charge the consumer as much as they possibly can, um, and that is why. the highly processed fast food is really not good for human beings on the long term. Again, indulgences, once in a while, you're fine. But doing it a couple times a day or, or even just a couple times a week is not good.
1: So fast food means a fast way to get something cheapened for the purpose of selling it to you and adding whatever nonsense they want to add. I think we're not going to get any advertising from fast food companies after this, (laughs) but then, I don't know, they're always welcome to send somebody over and say, hey, this is really good food. I also wonder why a place like a McDonald's wouldn't offer like a premium line like organic beef or something like that. Would there be a market for a fast food restaurant offering a special premium line? Or would that simply create suspicion over their normal offerings? Christina, Gene, and Tam, you're in The
0: Pericast.
7: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
17: Have you heard the warning from the dead Doctors Don't Lie guy? I'm talking about Dr. Joel Wallach. He says if you have a four-inch medical chart, if you take prescription drugs for high cholesterol or high blood pressure, arthritis, joint pains, or other health issues, the medical profession is failing you. They're using you for an ATM machine. That's what he says. He has a free lecture revealing what pharmaceutical companies don't want you to know. There's been groundbreaking research and discoveries on how to effectively treat or eliminate over 900 different diseases naturally. And it's all in his free lecture called Deadly Recipe. You want it free? Call him toll free at 855-79-YOUNG. You ready? 855-79-YOUNG. Dr. Joel Wallach, the dead doctors don't lie guy, says there's no reason why we shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there.
9: News update: This Sunday, the FAA ordering inspections of the Boeing 737-9 Max model after that scare in the air Friday when a door blows off an Alaska Airlines flight, the plane at 16,000 feet. A little boy's shirt and cell phone sucked out while passengers forced to put on the oxygen masks as the pilot lands safely.
1: We believe, from looking at radar data,
3: that the door is around Barnes Road, near I-217, and the Cedar Hills neighborhood.
9: NTSB Chair Jennifer Hamendi in a news conference with reporters. The Northeast getting its first snow of the season. Hagerstown, Maryland, parts of New Jersey, and farther north in Boston, all getting snow. Millions of people in the storm's path. And I'm Laura Winters, USA News.
11: you the marasino
17: cherry okay 25,000 cheering next drive now you want to try that on television well you see
4: radio is a very special medium because it stretches the imagination advertising your business with gcn is simple effective and more affordable than you might think visit advertise.gcnlive.com
10: for more info take your business to the next level
0: This is Micah Hanks of The Gray Report, and you're listening to The Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: The book is entitled, Holy Food, How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influence What We Eat in American History. Yeah, we're just talking about all sorts of things food-related. But you got the point of my question here would make any marketing sense for any of these fast food restaurants to provide premium food at a price or set up a separate chain for it.
2: I don't know if you've seen this in the news recently. McDonald's has done just that. They have set up a new branding called Cosmic. It serves a little different Quote unquote, higher end of food offerings, but it's still owned by McDonald's and they're still sourcing from the very same places. The first one that opened is in Bowling Brook, Illinois. If anybody's nearby, they can go and check it out. And they're using different types of flavor profiles and teas. I was just looking it up real quick as you were talking for a moment, Jean, And so at the Cosmics you can get a creamy avocado tomatillo sandwich a spicy queso sandwich. And so the idea is that they're elevating, to use a terrible culinary term, the normal McDonald's setting. Because I think, as you said, Jean, is if they try to introduce organic or something different at the McDonald's, you'd actually dilute the brand. You'd, as you said, makes people suspect of the other offerings, but you dilute the power of the brand. We think of McDonald's as something very cheap and cheerful and easy. It's not somewhere we think of when we're looking to get a creamy avocado tomatillo sandwich.
1: Well, I'm looking at the menu here for COSMC. MC, okay? Mm-hmm. And they also offer, which makes things more confusing, things from the mcdonald's universe
2: yeah i I wonder how that's going to work out for them traditionally when you mix your brand or you dilute your brand, your food brand it doesn't always work out for you so we'll see we shall see watch this space right
1: we're we're gonna watch it in terms of traditions of food what do you think since this is a paranormal show are the strangest (laughs)
2: Um, I'm thinking about what is the strangest, well, lutefisk comes up to the top of my list all the time um, because it's a fish and you're preserving it with alkaline, uh, not acidity. Alkaline and humans are very susceptible to alkaline poisoning. So if you do that incorrectly, you're going to die. That is a really strange food to want to eat. And so there's other foods that fall in that line of actually dangerous. People may be familiar with like the fugu, the fish in Japan, that it has to be prepared exactly correctly because it's a, they eat it raw as a sushi. Um, but if it is prepared incorrectly, you will be poisoned and die within you a know, very short period of time. It's a fast acting nerve poison. So anyone who is eating something that has the potential to kill you immediately versus long term is scary and, and strange in my book.
1: Well, at least you don't have to worry about it. If you don't have much time left with your life, you can just go for it.
2: Well, there's a number of people who are like thrill seekers um, who go and eat the, the fugu, the, that poisonous fish. They do it for that, that adrenaline rush of like it's essentially playing Russian roulette with sushi. I think it's the same way with lutefisk.
13: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. At, at least when I tried it, it was it was kind of that. I'm I'm going to eat this stuff. <laughs> and
2: and what did you think of it? Did you like it?
13: <sighs> Not really, no. <laughs> no, I'll have to be honest. And uh, uh, I mean, I was with people who I mean grew up eating it, and they didn't expect me to enjoy it. But I wanted to try it. I, I am a. When it comes to food, I will try anything, you know, just so I can say that. Uh, well, I tried
2: it, oh. and so
13: Ludafisk was one of them.
2: <laughs> it's a commendable notion, and um, I, you're braver than I.
13: <laughs> <laughs> well, and considering where you live, I'm surprised that you haven't tried it. <laughs>
2: I have an out is I'm allergic to fish so that has given me a pass on any Minnesotan trying to make me eat lutefisk.
1: Ah, uh, well, I'm not allergic to fish I just don't like it.
13: <laughs> <laughs> well for me probably the the most bizarre food um would have been jellyfish that I've tried. And it's um, the texture is interesting, I'll put it that way.
2: (laughs) There is a cuisine, and I've eaten it when I was younger, um, and I wouldn't eat it today, is in Wisconsin. It is a Christmas tradition around the holiday season to eat cannibal sandwiches. And cannibal yes. sandwiches are essentially steak tartare. It's it's raw meat, and you eat um, a smear of raw meat with a slice of raw onion on a little piece of rye bread with a little dash of salt and pepper. And that is something in Wisconsin that is considered like a delicacy.
1: You know what? You eat it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not eating it. No, I've had that.
7: (laughs) And by the way,
1: Tim died, by the way, Tim died 20 years ago. (laughs) This is his ghost. He comes on a paranormal show and we talk to a genuine ghost. Seriously speaking, speaking of bizarre, like chocolate covered ants or something like that. (sighs) I wouldn't do it, although my first wife did and she's still alive.
2: And some of the foods, and it, then it becomes about culture, because if you're in South America or on the African continent, eating insects is common. That's as common as lutefisk to Minnesotans. Uh, and so we, we, we have to break down some of these regional and cultural barriers. Now, I'm with Eugene. I'm not interested in personally eating chocolate-covered ants. Um, it it triggers my ick factor immediately. But that is where some of the food studies and food science is going with protein, with artificial and new sources of protein, because we just know that the industrial farming of cattle specifically, and then also chicken is really unsustainable long-term. And so there's a lot of companies, big companies experimenting with insect proteins. So, it may not just be a chocolate-covered ant, but you might have a hybrid, you know, Beetle burger coming to McDonald's in the next 25, 30 years.
1: I'm thinking, though, in terms of food replicators. We have 3D printers now that can create lots of things. They're trying to use them now to create replacement organs. So instead of getting a organ transplant from somebody, a donor, you... Create it, and I guess you could configure it in such a way that it will be genetically compatible with the recipients so they don't have the rejection nonsense. But that's another possibility. What about food replicators? Of course, we see that in Star Trek. You saw that in Farscape, too. How far are we away from food replicators where we can just use a machine to create from raw materials? It's going to c- sus- be coming
2: closer. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming because they've, they've already successfully created lab-grown meat. So essentially using cell technology, w- seeded, um, they have been able to produce chicken and a steak. And so once you've kind of crossed the, the theoretical science of actually knowing and figuring out how to do it, then it's a matter of the applied science of how to scale it and make it feasible and monetize it. And that I think you'll see in the next 10 to 15 years in some fa- form or fashion. Maybe not actually a Star Trek a replicator, but you'll see something. Just as we have uh, logs that can grow your own mushrooms, I could foresee a future where we, ha- people who are interested will have their little meat growing lab cabinets and will be growing their own chicken.
1: Okay, that sounds like fun.
13: (laughs) But will there be religious groups who will be opposed
2: to that, though? There are religious groups already. If we think about, like, the Jehovah Witnesses don't mm-hmm. allow their uh, believers to get a blood transfusion. They feel that that, again, violates the purity of the body. And so a lot of religious organizations, both mainstream and more you know, fringe, are starting to wrestle with the ideas of, you know— Gene therapies and cellular therapies, and what does this mean to our theology?
1: We've got more to come with Christina, Jean, and Tim. You're in
13: the Paracast.
7: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
1: Hey, listeners. the Plus. to learn more about Paracast Plus.
14: Are you curious about what might be missing from your diet and supplement choices? Take a free health assessment to identify your possible nutrient deficiencies. As a certified holistic health coach, I will help you assess and prioritize a supplement program based on Dr. Wallach's recommendations. Call Linda at 833-VITAL90. That number to call is 833 848
9: This is Marie D. Jones, the author of this book is from the future. And you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: Speaking of strange things going on here with food, how do religious traditions handle this? So you can have kosher food prepared in a certain way. You can have different religious groups pass on something what does the rabbi do with plant-based meat
2: A lot of times what they do, and what any of the religious um, leaders do, is they gather together and they talk about it. And they look at the science, they look at their scripture, they look at other past theologians and respected thinkers, and what did they say when something new was introduced to the culture. And they try to use precedent to determine whether something is going to fall within acceptable food rules or outside those acceptable food rules. And this is something that happens all the time, especially in the Judaic and Islamic cultures where either kosher and halal practices are happening. They're assessing foods all the time. But when we talk about little fringe groups, I'm thinking of the Latter-day Saints with all of the rise of Starbucks and all of the kind of rooty-tooty kind of drinks that are coffee-based. The leaders at the Mormon Church had to put out bulletins reminding the young believers that coffee was indeed forbidden for Mormons and that Macchiato was coffee, and they needed to stop ordering those things.
13: So, where does this take us in the future? I mean, we were talking about lab-grown meats, and considering that there are countries that are actively forbidding, say, like genetically modified grains, is this going to be an issue of contention in the future? when it comes to laboratory
2: meats. (laughs) I think it will. Anytime that we are faced with something new, a new science, a new idea, that religion always has to deal with it, and they don't always deal with it well. People are change adverse and we're seeing it a little bit if we think about the like new age, quote unquote, new age communities that grow out of the modern yoga communities. And we're seeing them being very reactive about vaccination. I'm not talking about the modern COVID, but even things that have been proven for years like measles, people are starting to reject that because they just don't trust the newness of the science. And so that's something you see with a lot of new religious groups. When something is challenging or threatening perceptibly to their belief system, they will reject the whole on the entirety and say, no, just give it up. We're not doing this. And then we reject everything that came before that that is associated with it.
1: Of course, the the problem with that is that, for example, we're seeing in some of the wastewater supplies in New York some evidence of polio because people are not taking... The polio vaccine for any reason. correct, And that means yeah. diseases that we thought we conquered would return. And I have to say this. I remember somebody I knew very well, a brilliant writer and scholar, Yona Fortner, who had polio as a child and was crippled for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. So this is before the polio vaccine, not long before, based on what he told me at the time. Mm-hmm. So that's unfortunate. Right.
2: It is unfortunate, and that is our great challenge as Americans. We can have our spiritual beliefs, and we can have our practices, but we should always be a little cautious that what our spiritual leaders are telling us is to our own best interest, just as a human community. If your spiritual leader is telling you something that could cause harm to you, your family, or your community— Go ask somebody else and get a second opinion on that because every religious leader I've spoken to for all of the non-cult, non-high control, more benevolent religious beliefs will always say that God doesn't want to hurt you. (laughs) And so if you're doing something or if someone's telling you to do things to your body that causes you harm, that is a good time to get a second opinion and step back and reevaluate what you're thinking and believing.
1: Speaking of food traditions, let's cover a few more for this remaining episode of the main show. And that is, we've covered Islam, we've covered kosher and things like that and a few others. What other food traditions would you like to alert us to?
2: Well, I think we were talking about fast food and... I think that not enough people realize that the McDonald's filet fish was born out of the Catholic fish fry tradition. In Catholic culture, especially in the upper Midwest around the Great Lakes, you're not supposed to eat meat on Friday. And for whatever reason, the church fathers determined that fish is not meat, so you could eat fish on Friday. Mm. During Prohibition era, churches and bars looked to make money, and they would serve fish fries. And it became a really popular cultural thing, and it was acceptable to these large Catholic communities. You could go, you could all join in and have a great fish fry. It tasted delicious if you liked fish, and you were still adhering to those food rules. In Buffalo, New York, a McDonald's franchise owner realized how much business he was losing on Fridays because people weren't buying hamburgers on Fridays. And so he invented the Filet-O-Fish sandwich. Uh, McDonald's corporate was against it, but they allowed him to test it out. And of course, as you can imagine, it went on like gangbusters. People loved it and it got adopted nationwide. So that's why McDonald's serves the filet of fish sandwich, because a bunch of Catholics in Buffalo, New York were not buying McDonald's hamburgers.
1: <laughs> I just wonder if those Catholics in Buffalo, New York received a check from McDonald's.
2: I doubt it. But they should think themselves as being a part of the movement that started uh, fish patty sandwiches and be popularizing that. Well, I
1: wonder about trends. What about fried chicken sandwiches? You think fried food? Oh, my God. But those things are incredibly popular.
2: Foods go through trends and popularity and frying chicken in that matter, breading it and frying it as a, a piece of either thigh or breast meat comes from a southern tradition of frying foods, adds a lot of flavor, makes it palatable to usually cheaper cuts of meat. And that's why people fry food, fry meats. And so it, it, if something tastes delicious, it doesn't matter a lot. many times what the spiritual belief is or the religious inspiration for it. People just want to eat it.
1: It doesn't matter if you're clogging
2: your arteries. Yeah, it's hard to resist something very delicious. I, I, I personally am, I, I love candy and chocolate. And, you know, I probably shouldn't eat as much chocolate as I do. But it's, again, hard to resist. I'm limiting that consumption
1: now to the protein bar. But the protein bar I've tried lately doesn't even have any chocolate in it. that I can tell there's also <laughs> protein pastries. That i discovered yeah. from one company so that's pretty good i've been trying those out so we'll see if i'm still here next week we'll know that all the <laughs> experimentation i've done with food didn't make a difference or maybe i'm right. just lucky ah, watch hey. watch
2: those sugar alcohols
1: okay i will christina ward this has been fun to explore and we'll try to get into more detail with the after the powercast podcast but in the meantime, for those who want to know more about the things you do, where can they check you out?
2: My website is ChristinaWard.net. I also run Feral House Publishing, and so you can look at FeralHouse.com for my book, as well as hundreds and hundreds of other books on outsider fringe topics. And that's probably the best place to find out more about Holy Food and about other books that we publish.
1: Okay. Now you can find us on X, formerly Twitter or whatever they'll call it next week, on Threads, which is Facebook's imitation of X, and on Facebook. Look for the Paracast, the Paracast, and you'll find us. You know, we just post show announcements, really. We have most of our discussions on the Paracast forums. We also offer branded merchandise at the Paracast.store or the Paracast.shop. You have four logos to choose from and say you can buy a T-shirt in the various colors and then the different logos and we'll be happy for those orders. We also offer a streaming service called the Paracast Plus at theparacast.plus. What you get is this show without any of the network ads with higher quality audio And then we give you the exclusive bonus after the Paracast podcast where we continue discussions or do something altogether new. You never, ever know what's going to happen next. For more information and a quick way to sign up, go to theparacast.plus. Theparacast.plus. Christina Ward, author of Holy Food. It's been a guest. Thank you for joining us on the Paracast.
2: Oh, I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for such great and interesting questions.
0: The Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated.